between 1854 and 1929 in what later became known as the Orphan Train uh, Program, about 200,000 children from eastern U.S. were relocated and placed in foster or adoptive homes uh, further west. Now, not all of them went on trains, but uh, many of them did. And at the time, they didn't call them the orphan trains. They called them the baby trains or the mercy trains. Uh, prospective parents could place an order ahead of time specifying age, sex, even down to the color of the hair of the child they wanted. Uh, the program had good intentions, and that was to place uh, orphan children in uh, good adoptive homes. But eventually the program came under a lot of criticism. And uh, one of the problems was uh, they really didn't check out the parents, the prospective parents. And so some of these children were not placed in good homes. Um, some of them were placed in abusive homes. Uh, some farm families uh, chose children simply so they could get labor out of them. And so it wasn't always good. Also, the experience of being chosen was traumatizing for uh, many of the children. The train would pull into town. Uh, they would have a, a building there that would have a stage, and the children would be placed up on the stage, and uh, prospective parents would come and examine them and prod them and look at their teeth and uh, make them sing a song or say a piece uh, and do all sorts of things like that. And it had almost an auction-like experience, and it was from that experience that came the term up for adoption. Now, prospect, uh, even with uh, siblings, uh, it was often traumatic because uh, a parent could choose one sibling and reject the rest, and they would be separated. Uh, and uh, so many of the children lost their identity and their heritage, but it wasn't a bad experience for them all. Many of them were placed into good homes, were loved, were given a good childhood. But the problem was it was all a haphazard, without a lot of planning uh, or checking out the homes to see if it was a good fit. Uh, decisions were made at, on the spur of the moment. And I just want to contrast that with how different that is this morning from our adoption into our spiritual family, God's family. And so as we begin First Peter, Peter begins by saying to God's elect, and then we'll Skip the part about strangers I talked on last week. So to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and by sprinkling, or sprinkling by his blood. So to God's elect, the word elect means chosen. To God's chosen. There was no haphazard choosing here like on the orphan trains. You were chosen, it says, according to to the foreknowledge of God. When did God choose you? When you believed? No. You believing is the end result of God choosing you. You were chosen, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. How far back does God's foreknowledge go? Think about that. When did God first know your name? Many are probably sitting there thinking, well, eternally. The Bible teaches that God is omniscient. It's a big word meaning that he knows all things all the time. And so a million years ago, God knew your name and he chose you. A billion years ago, we could keep going back. Some would argue that, well, time actually has a beginning. 
Even today, scientists believe that time had a beginning. That God made time for this creation. That God lives outside of time. But the point of what Peter is saying is that we can never put God into a point of time where he did not know your name and had chosen you. He from eternity past had worked out the details to bring you to this moment today. God in his foreknowledge chose you and God did the necessary work in your heart to bring you to that place of repentance and faith. You see, if, we d if God didn't choose us, we would not choose God. So God doesn't wait until we choose. He gets involved. And one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to convict us of our sin and our need of a Savior to open up our understanding to truth. And God may even go so far as to manipulate your circumstances. Sometimes he even takes that to the extreme. One day Saul was riding his horse towards Damascus or his camel, whatever he was riding, intending to go there and persecute the Christians. Now this is just my imagination, so I don't take it home and say God had this conversation in heaven. But I like to imagination, uh, imagine a conversation going on in heaven where Jesus speaks to his father and says, you know, Father, if I were to knock that guy off his horse, and if I were to blind him with a bright, brilliant light, and if I were to speak to him directly, this guy is going to believe. That's going to be kind of fun. And the father says, hey, go for it. Let's knock Saul off his horse. Let's do it. Well, you know, everyone's story is different. That's Saul's story. He became Paul. But God did what was necessary to bring you to salvation. God foreknows and he acts towards your salvation. This is why we have your turn sharing in church. Each one that comes up and shares in your turn is simply telling God's story of how he acted it out in your life. And all of our stories are different. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the part that Peter's focusing on. God in his foreknowledge chose you. And then God explains how he worked out that process of choosing, how he carried it out. He says he carried it out through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And to that word to sanctify something, it means to set it apart. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, was setting you apart onto himself. So he says the sanctifying work. What Peter's saying is not a one-time event. It's a process. For some of us, it was a lengthy process bringing us to faith. For some of us, it's a quick process. Some of us prolong that process because of our pride and stubbornness. But for all of us who believe here this morning, the Holy Spirit brought you through a work of sanctification, a work over a period of time uh, bringing you to that place of faith. He worked faith in your hearts. He worked an understanding of who Jesus is and what he had done. And when you turned in faith to Jesus, the Holy Spirit worked the miracle of new birth. 
being spiritually born again. We've all gone through this process. It's just the difference is our stories are different of how the Holy Spirit did that. So God chose you and God worked a sanctifying process in you. And Peter goes on, he says, God did it for a purpose. And the purpose, first of all, is for obedience to Jesus Christ. As I've said before from the pulpit here, uh, we often make the mistake of making the purposes all about getting to heaven and escaping hell. And that's a wonderful result, and that's part of it. But the purpose that God over and over comes back to for salvation is the purpose is to bring you into obedience to Jesus Christ. Even in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's his purpose. So God chose you in his foreknowledge. He chose you to bring you to that place of obedience. Romans 8 defines obedience as being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Romans 12 defines uh, obedience as being transformed in our minds. So we are walking according to the will of God. Jesus defined it as obeying everything he commanded us to do. Paul defined, or Peter defined obedience a little bit later in this same chapter as being holy in all that you do. These definitions do not allow any rationalizations. None of us as believers can sit here and say, it's okay for me to do whatever it is. And you put your rationalization there. Because Jesus Christ did not save you to bring you to the point where you rationalize away things in your life. He saved you to bring you to obedience to him. And we're so good at rationalization, aren't we? You know, recently he's been in the news uh, about shoplifting and grocery stores is an all-time high. And as the media have interviewed shoplifters, or willing to be interviewed, if I was a shoplifter, I wouldn't want to be willing to be interviewed, but some are. And here's the rationalization when they ask, why are you doing this? The rationalization is, while the grocery stores, the companies are making all-time record profit, they're taking advantage of us. And because they're taking advantage of us, it's okay for me to get some of mine back. See the rationalization that's happening? Well, as believers, we're not to think that way. God chose you for obedience. That is the purpose of our salvation. But he gives a second purpose, and that's for the sprinkling by his blood. And this is a distinctly Old Testament reference. In the Old Testament, the priests said certain sacrifices or certain ceremonies would take, they'd capture the blood. As they'd slit the throat of the animal, they would capture that blood in a basin. And they would take it and they would sprinkle it on the people. I was very tempted to just have some water here this morning and sprinkle it on you. <laughs> and I thought, well, I better not. Somebody might have an open Bible and they wouldn't be happy with me if I sprinkled water on their Bible. Or maybe they'd even be worse their iPhone. I don't know. <laughs> but the sprinkling of blood symbolized cleansing. The blood that was shed for your sins was sprinkled on you, symbolizing that you were covered by the blood, cleansed by the blood. 
Now, as the book of Hebrews explains, the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices sprinkled on you really couldn't cleanse you. They were pointing ahead to the blood that would cleanse you, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that meaning certainly fits our context that God chose you to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ to be cleansed of your sin. The second usage where they would uh, sprinkle blood was to sanctify or dedicate an object or a person as being holy unto God. And so when they cleansed it, dedicated it to God, they would sprinkle the blood on the people or on the utensils. When priests were dedicated to God, they had blood sprinkled on them. And when Aaron was dedicated, I believe they put blood on his earlobes and so on. From then on, the object was not to be used for common usage. And so you had all these utensils in the temple that were used for holy usage. The Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem, and they carted all those utensils off to Babylon. And for decades, they sat there just in storage. They were holy, and the kings of Babylon even didn't use them. Until we come to Belshazzar, and he's having a feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he decides he's going to profane these holy vessels. And he brings them out and they use them for the feast. And what does God do? God writes with his hand, just the hand showing, a message of judgment on Belshazzar. And that very night, Belshazzar lost his kingdom. You see... What has been dedicated as holy unto God is not to be used for profane usages. And that also fits our context as we go later into Peter. He talks about that we are dedicated to be holy people. Dedicated for God's use. We're not to come to just salvation. Thank you, Lord, for my salvation. Now I can go do what I want. No, because you become a holy person. And your life is not to be used for profane usages. Be holy, he says, because I am holy. The third reason to sprinkle blood on people was to ratify a covenant with them. A blood covenant was not to be broken. And when God made his covenant with Israel, they sacrificed the animals. And then Moses went throughout the people and he sprinkled the blood on the people. And it was ratifying that God had made this covenant with them and God would not break his covenant. And again, that fits for us. Because God has made a new covenant with us. And this is the covenant that he's given to us. Uh, Hebrews says that this is the covenant I will make. I'm personalizing it. Instead of them, I'll, make, I'll personalize it to you. This is the covenant I will make with you. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws on your heart, in your heart, and I'll write them in your mind. And then he adds, your sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. This is who we are. We are the covenant people of God, the chosen ones of God. He has sanctified us, set us apart to be unto him to be his holy people for the purpose of bringing us into obedience to Jesus Christ the obedient holy people who have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, this is what we celebrate in communion. I have been chosen. You know, as a child, 
it's hard when you're not chosen. The kids are picking a teams for playing ball and you're not athletic. And they pick their teams and you're left out. Feels awful. The kid, a child is having a birthday party and all the other children are invited except for you. Feels awful, doesn't it? Or maybe the children are segregated according to their marks or perceived social status and so on. You know, many of us, we know what it feels like to be left out, don't we, somewhere. But that's not what happens in God's family. This morning we celebrate being chosen. You've been chosen. So the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread, representing his body broken for you, he valued you enough that he was willing to allow his body to be broken for you so that you could be chosen. You are chosen. Let's partake together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus chose you, valued you enough that he shed his blood so that you could be cleansed through the sprinkling of his blood, so that you could be sanctified, set apart as holy before God, so that you could be part of God's covenant to make you a holy people, a forgiven people. You are chosen. Let's partake. And now I want to just finish with Peter's words as he gives us these thoughts. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. I'll ask the worship team to come forward.